Let's pray. Lord, as we approach your word, we are conscious that we are on holy ground, talking about the wonder of your eternal plan to save us and to win a relationship with you for each of us. Lord, I just pray that as we reflect on your words again, that your Holy Spirit will touch us afresh with the wonder of what you have done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. We're about to start a series on John's letters and um, they're not that long. You can actually read all three of them through fairly quickly. But it's an extraordinary experience. It's a bit like going on a kind of roller coaster where you can see so much from the top that you can hardly take it all in. And it makes you feel a bit breathless. There's um, one of the commentators I read said, we are thrown headlong into a symphony of salvation. And... Um, in a way, that's what studying John's letters is like. Um, it's about God's plan from the very beginning of time into eternity. It's about what the Christian faith is about and how we come to be here at all. It's about Jesus and what he did and why and how. And it's about moving from our own experience to wanting to proclaim that to other people. So it's a very, very sort of bumpy ride. Um, you could almost take one verse a day just to, to sort of contemplate. Um, the authorship of John's letter is a little bit disputed. It sounds so much, especially chapter one, sounds so much like John's gospel, chapter one, that there's some assumption that it was actually written by John the Apostle. It might have been or it might not have been because such truths were being talked about around the place, in a way, it doesn't sort of matter. This was someone who was firmly rooted in the gospel, who would have thought in exactly the same way that John the Apostle did. And it was a very long time ago for us to know exactly who was writing what and who was saying what and how it was all put together. But the fact is, this is the heart of the gospel. And if I just do a quick list of what you're going to cover in the next um, few weeks in John's letters, we've got the word, we've got the certainty of Christ's incarnation, we've got who is Jesus, we've got eternal life, we've got um, God, what God is like, faithful, forgiving, pure, light, truth, that he can be known, that he's father-like, we've got light and darkness, we've got light, life and death, we've got sin and forgiveness, we've got truth and untruth, we've got love and hate, we've got how we should live together and we end up with the end of time. So it really is a bit of a roller coaster and quite a bit of it is in John 1 chapter 1. So um, if this feels a bit bumpy, believe me, preparing it was a bit bumpy as well. Um, the context in which the writer, who may well have been jo um, the John that we know, but was obviously a John, um, was that the church was new. It was surrounded not only by people of other faiths and people of no faith, but people who called themselves Christians had climbed on the bandwagon, but somehow hadn't got it right. Now, that to me sounds very familiar because I think the world in which we live, and perhaps more so today than when I was growing up, is full of people who either have got a sort of a bit of a handle on Christianity and think Jesus was a really good bloke, but they haven't really followed through and they think it probably doesn't matter anyway. Um, there are people who 
think that it really doesn't matter what you believe, as long as you believe something. And I meet many of those, you know, whether you're um, of, of any religion or as long as you're spiritual, you know, there is this kind of acceptance that it doesn't really matter what you believe. And it's very difficult for us as Christians to be absolutely certain and authoritative about what we believe because in a way it's not very politically correct to say what I believe is right and actually I think what you believe is wrong. Because we're actually, we find that very, very difficult to do. And it's even more difficult to do in a way which is loving and accepting and respectful. Um, and incredibly hard if we are mixing with people at work or anywhere else who either have no faith or a vague spirituality um, and who are very suspicious of anyone who is dogmatic about anything. So this is the world we live in, and to be honest, that's the world that this letter was written into. And so it has a lot to say to us. It tells us, apart from anything else, that we need to know what we believe. And if during this time of looking at the letters of John, we can become more and more certain of what it is we believe and more confident in that, then perhaps we'll be more able, gently, but authoritatively, to share our faith with others. And that obviously is our focus as we move into the next, this next half of the year, um, that we should be willing to share our faith with others. So let's focus on 1 John, chapter 1, um, and have a bit of a roller coaster um, trip um, and hang on in there because you can always read it again when you get home. Um, in verse 1, John is saying, that which was from the beginning. Well, that sounds a bit obvious. It's like once upon a time or something like that. Um, and of course, John's letter begins exactly in the same way. In the beginning was the word. The whole Bible begins in that way. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. So in the beginning is a very big phrase in the Bible. And here we are in a letter after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he's saying that which was from the beginning which might seem a bit of a funny place to start. You would expect him to start with Jesus, but he says that which was from the beginning. It's a cosmic view. It starts firmly by saying there was a God, there is a God who at the beginning of time created the universe and Jesus was there. Jesus always was God. And Jesus, like in, 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 John's, in John's gospel, he says nothing was created without him. He was there right at the beginning. And God planned before he created a single fly that there would be people, that they would be created in order to know him and to experience his fatherhood and that Jesus would come and be incarnate, be a person, and would die and would rise again for us. From the beginning, that was God's plan, God's cosmic plan. And that's really hard to take in, that before we were ever born, God knew who we would be and our part in that cosmic plan. So the passage starts, that which was from the beginning, in other words, God's perfect plan embodied in Jesus Christ we have heard, 
We have seen with our eyes, we've looked at, our hands have touched, and in verse 2, we have seen it and we testify to it. Now, that is pretty mind-blowing. It suggests that this spiritual reality, which is God, actually came and was touched and seen and heard and felt. And this letter is to bear testimony to the truth. The life appeared, we have seen it, we testify to it, we proclaim it to you. The eternal life which was with the Father and has now appeared to us. So what do we say if people ask us why we think Christianity is right? What is it that makes what we believe any different to what loads and loads of other people believe? of all kinds, whether they're formal religions or just a general kind of mishmash. What do we say if people say to us, how do you know that God is the God that you believe in, that Jesus Christ was who he says he was? Because at some point we're going to have to answer that question. And the answer here in this passage, indeed the answer Tom was preaching on last week, is that there are historical facts that we can point to. There are things which happened, which are attested to not just by uh, Christians, but by other historians as well. And this letter starts, we've looked at it, we've seen it, we've touched it. And because we know you haven't, we want you to know we're passing this on in a letter so that you, in 2,000 years' time, can read this letter in a church in Guildford and say, these people saw and these people touched and these people knew that this was none other than the living God. We saw, we touched, and we share this testimony with you. And knowing that there is a basis in fact for our faith is an incredible basis for stability. It's also a very sound basis for sharing our faith. I don't know about you, but if ever I feel rocked by the whole kind of is there really a God thing, and I don't think there's anybody that doesn't get rocked by that every now and again when life seems complicated or the world seems to be going to hell on a handcart. And you think, where is God in all this? And actually, for me, what really helps is to say, well, if there is no God in all this, where did creation come from? What was Jesus about when he said, I and the Father are one? And just to try to go back to that solidity which re-anchors our faith um, in something uh, which is real. And the writer in verse 2 says, We had the privilege of touching him, but this is written so that you can share our assurance and our joy. Verse 3, we proclaim this to you so that you may also have fellowship with us. And in verse 4, to make our joy, and that pronoun, that um, pronoun, our, um, could be either our or your. So in other words, to make your joy complete. Okay, so I'm telling you this so that the joy that it gives us to know what Jesus did the wonder of what he did. We saw him and we saw that he died for our sins and he rose again. We have that joy and that assurance and we want you to have it too. And the people that this letter was being written to are encouraged to share in that joy. And where was that joy going to come from? Fellowship with the Father. 
our fellowship, verse three, is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. I mean, that's enough to blow your mind on its own, isn't it? When Jesus said, I am the Father of one, and then he said, I am in you, and the Father is in you, and I in you, and you in me, John 20. You know, this amazing promise that God, who created the world from the beginning, came as a human baby, as lived as a human man, and said, I'm here to tell you that God is in you, with you, loves you, cares for you, and wants to be your father. In fact, in chapter 3, verse 1, uh, which again Tom mentioned, I think, a few weeks ago, See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God and that is what we are. Dear friends, now we are children of God. Now, I mean, that is just amazing. C.S. Lewis was once asked why the Christian faith was different to any other faith and he said, I've only got one word in answer to that and that's grace. Grace is what makes the Christian faith different to any other. What does grace mean? We deserve nothing. We are just ordinary people with all our faults and foibles. We go on sinning. We get it all wrong. We resent. We are uh, cross. We are selfish. We are godless. We forget God. We charge ahead. We love the world. And yet, in that situation, God reaches out and loves us. That's grace. Grace is undeserved favor. Grace is what Jesus Christ poured out on us, and that's what should give us this complete joy in verse 4. Now, I'm then tempted to say, what do we actually mean by joy? It's a funny sort of word, isn't it? Does it mean, um, you know, sort of jumping up and down with a balloon? It's hard to be uncheered with a balloon. Um, I wonder what is this joy in verse 4? What does it feel like? Now, I know that if I was to ask the 300, 400 odd people who regularly come into one or other of our services, if you were to score your life right now as everything is wonderful, is 10, and everything is just about as, I was going to say shitty, am I allowed to say that? Um, As it could possibly be as a one, Where would your life be right now? What is going on in your life that makes it really, really exciting and you wake up in the morning and think, yes. And what is it that you wake up in the morning and you think, oh Lord, no. And somewhere in the middle we all are and our lives go like that, don't they? All the time. So where is joy? Do we only have joy when we're up at the 9-10 end? The whole point of this is that our joy complete is due to the message that this passage has, which is that God loves us so much that he came into the world to transform even our dark places into light, even our death and our bereavement and our awareness of death into life, that he came so that even in the midst of all this, that is so troubling to us. There can be like a nugget, like a a light that's sort of flickering deep inside, which is the grace and the love of God. This is the message, verse 5, that we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light. 
and in him there is no darkness at all. I wonder what is darkness for you right now? I wonder what's darkness for the people that you know? It wouldn't be difficult to, to suggest what's darkness in the world. All sorts of darkness from Americans taking guns into schools and shooting people to war in Sudan to hunger and need and, and so many things. Darkness, even our smallest primary school children have no problem telling you what darkness is in the world. But what does it feel like to walk in the light? Perhaps if we were in a different situation, I would ask you all to have a little chat about that. What does it mean to walk in the light? What would be the darkness that God is offering to brighten for you today? Might it be the darkness of anxiety? Might it be the darkness of being afraid of what's going to happen next in life? Might it be the darkness of anxiety for children or other relatives? Might it be the darkness of need? And this passage says, God is light. And if we have this fellowship with God, who has reached out to us in grace, then it's so that we should know light in our darkness and joy in our sorrow. And that is really, really hard. It doesn't mean that we're being flippant. It means that there is a kind of solid core of trust and assurance, which says that just as surely as Jesus went to the cross and rose on the third day, so we too will rise with him, not just at the last day, but in every time that his Holy Spirit wells up within us and assures us that we are loved and assures us that there is hope and assures us that the arms of God are still wrapped around us. So verse six, if we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. So darkness is all sorts of things. It's wallowing in those things which cause us misery. And we can be wallowers, can't we? We can all of us wallow. Um, and actually, the dark, walking in the darkness, certainly for me sometimes, walking in the darkness is just allowing the troubling things and the anxious things and the difficult things to become dominant rather than bringing them to God and saying, Lord, give me the victory over that. But of course, it also means the darkness of sin, the darkness of getting it wrong, the darkness of making wrong choices. I wonder if there's one thing for us right now that we might bring to God and say, Lord, actually, do you know what? This is dark, this resentment, this anger, this broken relationship, this fear, this whatever is actually a bit more dark than it is light. Lord, would you shine your light into that? and put something different into it. Where it's all a bit crazy and complicated in relationships, Lord, would you shine light in the darkness so that it's clear and vibrant again? And it does suggest we have a choice. If we claim to have fellowship with him yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we know what that light is. It's fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. We don't have to be perfect before we can walk in the light. The light is knowing that we're forgiven. But we need to live in it. Does anyone do Wordle? 
Am I the only person who first thing in the morning does Wordle? And it's a bit of a struggle as to which comes first, my quiet time or my Wordle. Uh, that's, a, that's, that's my secret vice. I sit there with Lepti on one side and Wordle on the other. And it, um, but they both get done. So come on, can anyone tell me what this morning's word was? Do you know, you forget really quickly, don't you? Anybody know? Paul, you were putting your hand up. Isn't it funny? I can never remember except that this morning I actually had a bit of a quiet time first. It's dwelt. Oh, no, it's today's. It was dwelt. And I was just thinking about this sermon, you see, as I was before I came downstairs. And I came downstairs and I did Wordle. And it was dwelt. And I thought, well, funny word, we don't use dwell anymore, do we? Where do you dwell? You know, it's just not a word, is it? It's the same as we don't use the word abide anymore, except if we're on a football field and we're singing abide with me. And yet those are two words that the Bible uses very often. And I don't think we've got an English equivalent. But it means to sort of stay there, stick it, stick there. You know, you don't dwell on holiday. You dwell where you belong. You don't abide in a transient way, you abide where you belong. And it was really funny, I was doing this, I was doing Wordle this morning, and I felt God was saying, you can use that, you know, because I want my people to dwell in me, and I want to dwell in them. And I want this to be not just something that you think about during Sunday evening sermon, but something which you think of when you wake up on Monday morning, and you think, yes, I am in Christ, and Christ is in me. And the potential for life and hope and light is there, even when I'm in the middle of that difficult, demanding, far too much to do situation. So we have a choice. And of course, this, this passage ends with this lovely bit about forgiveness. The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, purifies us from all sin. There is no other faith which gives us the opportunity of coming with all our brokenness and having complete assurance that through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we are forgiven, we are guiltless. There is no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, just because the righteous punishment has been paid by Jesus Christ. He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we don't admit that we need it, then we don't get it. If we claim we have not sinned, and we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. But the beginning of 1 John, which I'm afraid I rather sprung on, Paulina, sorry about that, um, but the beginning of chapter 2, because it just ties in, you can't really not have it. It says, I write this to you so that you will not sin. Well, that's a... F <laughs> Good luck with that then. Um, but if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. If we are going to receive all those blessings that we've just talked about, then we have to be willing to admit that we're sinners. And that might mean that we actually have to repent. I'm really, really bad at repenting. I find it so difficult to actually take sin seriously when I know that Christ has forgiven me. 
but to go back and actually look in and say, Lord, I'm so sorry. And thank you that you can not only forgive, but purify and redeem all in me that's broken and messy. The whole purpose of God's amazing, costly, appalling plan is based on the premise that there is a gulf between us and God and its sin. And it has to be dealt with. And our fellowship and our joy and our living in the light and our knowing the fatherhood of God depends on our willingness to accept that forgiveness and to start afresh. So it is a bit of a a packed passage, isn't it? A bit of a whistle-stop tour. I'm just going to end up with a little summary. God, from the beginning, planned our salvation. And just as he spoke the word of creation, he sent the word with a capital W, who is Jesus Christ, into the world to recreate the world. And we can believe that, not just because we choose to believe it, but because of the historical facts of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus and people like John who bore testimony to that so that we might share in it, even 2,000 years down the line. And what is it that we have got as a result of that plan? A relationship with God, our Father, through Jesus Christ. Joy. Joy which somehow is different from a frivolous happiness. Light where there is darkness. Forgiveness through the atoning death of Christ. And we are called to reconciliation. If we confess our sins, we have fellowship with one another. Is there anyone you need to, as it were, be reconciled to through repentance tonight? From the very first day, this is a message, from the very first day we were there taking it all in, we heard it with our own ears, we saw it with our own eyes, we verified it with our own hands. The word of life appeared right before our eyes. We saw it happen. And now we're telling you in most sober prose that what we witnessed was incredibly this. The infinite life of God himself took shape before us. We saw it, we heard it, and now we're telling you so that you can experience it along with us. This experience of communion with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. Our motive for writing is simply this. We want you to enjoy this too. Your joy will double our joy. This, in essence, is the message we heard from Christ, and we are passing it on to you. God is light pure light. There's not a trace of darkness in him. If we claim that we experienced a shared life with him and continue to stumble around in the dark, we're obviously lying. We're not living what we claim. But if we walk in the light, God himself being the light, we also experience a shared life with one another as the sacrificed blood of Jesus, God's son, purges all our sin. If we claim that we're free of sin, we're only fooling ourselves. A claim like that is errant nonsense. On the other hand, if we admit our sins, simply come clean about them. He won't let us down. He'll be true to himself. He'll forgive our sins. He'll purge us of all wrongdoing. If we claim that we've never sinned, we contradict God and make him a liar. A claim like that only shows off our ignorance of God. Let's pray. have a moment of quiet. Father, I just pray that 
the wonder of what you have won for us through your eternal plan will stir us afresh this evening. May we be so touched by that wonder that even the coldest of us will be warmed that we will know this week your light in our darkness, your life, your grace, your forgiveness. And Lord, may that be so wonderful to us that we want to tell others. Come, Lord Jesus, by your spirit and renew our faith. Amen.